All right, we are back. We're talking about Parade Magazine. <laughs> a weakness of mine, I must admit. Someone wrote in and asked, what's the greatest rock and roll song of all time? And I would say not to their credit, they attempted to answer that question. In fact, they get even less credit once you see how they do answer it. Anyway, someone from Bozeman, Montana, asked that question, and the answer was, listeners of many classic rock stations regularly vote Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, number one. But the editors at Parade said, we'd choose Otis Redding's Respect, the song that became a feminist anthem once it was covered in 1967 by incomparable Aretha Franklin. Hmm. Greatest rock and roll tune of all time, Respect. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I can pick the greatest rock and roll tune of all time, but let me see if I can pick one better than Respect. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to go with The Tubes' White Punks on Dope. Mr. Marilyn, what would be your choice? I don't think I can beat that. How about uh, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan? Okay, those will do. All right, and speaking of music, we want to add the following. Apparently, Spinal Tap is back. Yes, apparently the spoof heavy metal group Spinal Tap is still a hilarious success, according to Mario Taradell in the Dallas Morning News. The news item is that to celebrate the 25th anniversary of This is Spinal Tap, our personal choice as the funniest movie ever, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer are revisiting their roles as David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, and Derek Smalls. Together they released a new record that puts other rock bands to shame. Back from the Dead, a raucous collection of 11 freshly recorded classics, which is five new tracks and three instrumentals, works famously not only as farce, but more surprisingly, as real rock and roll. But uh, you know what? We, may, we, have, we have to vote their rendition of the classic, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You, as every bit as good as respect. Noted Jim DeRogatis in the Chicago Sun-Times, their renditions show these funny men have the chops and the ears to create sounds of their own that actually deserve to be turned up to 11. And if you don't get that reference, you obviously haven't seen the movie. And if you haven't seen the movie, you need to. This is our last pre-eclipse show, so we put out uh, the, the, uh, the call again to anyone who's going to see the eclipse in China or India or out in the Pacific Ocean. Please plan to drop us a line and let us know how this is going to go, how this went. I have a little factoid to associate with that, uh, which is that the moon's shadow, as it races across the Earth's surface, moves along at 5,000 miles an hour. It's about Mach 9. My last two eclipse-chasing events, I've tried to get up on a hill so I could see the Earth's shadow roar roaring at, uh, at we witnesses, but um, I failed on both occasions. But I swear to you, dear listener, although I'm not going to try and see this one uh, this summer, next year, July 2010, there's an eclipse in the South Pacific, and I will be there to report on it for you. The eclipse will be passing right over Easter Island, but the island's been booked up now for years. Discover Magazine's little summary of this event noted that the renowned eclipse chaser J.W. Campbell of Canada traveled the world for 50 years trying to see 12 different eclipses and ran into overcast skies every time. The magazine suggests that you don't repeat J.W.'s mistakes because monsoon seasons in the South Asia mean there's a good chance that this, this eclipse this month will be clouded out too. But as my friend uh, Scott pointed out, who was in China just a few months ago, uh, <laughs> Even on a so-called clear day, the sky is still white. 
And uh, to segue a bit, when my, when my pal Scott dropped by, he mentioned to me that I needed to read the article in the current edition of Rolling Stone by Matt Taibbi about Goldman Sachs. I'd already heard people praising this article from the left, uh, but my friend Scott is a Republican, so when I'm hearing it praised from the right and the left, I knew I had to go get this article. So let's take a minute to talk about The Great American Bubble Machine by Matt Taibbi. If you pull this up on the web, I think you will still not be able to read the entire article, but there's some wonderful video clips of Matt Taibbi talking about this. And uh, like many fabulous articles, this one deserves a few quotes to be extracted. Taibbi starts, starts out talking about the incredible power of Goldman Sachs, notes that any attempt to construct a narrative around the former Goldmanites in influential positions quickly becomes an absurd and pointless exercise, like trying to make a list of everything. What you need to know is the big picture. If America is circling the drain, Goldman Sachs has found a way to be that drain. The bank's unprecedented reach and power have enabled it to turn all of America into a giant pump-and-dump scam, manipulating whole economic sectors for years at a time, moving the dice game as this or that market collapses, and all the time gorging itself on the unseen costs that are breaking families everywhere. High gas prices, rising consumer credit rates, half-eaten pension funds, mass layoffs, future taxes to pay off bailouts, all that money you're losing is going somewhere. And in both a literal and figurative sense, Goldman Sachs is where it's going. Later he notes, they achieved this using the same playbook over and over again. The formula is relatively simple. Goldman Sachs positions itself in the midst of a speculative bubble, selling investments they know are crap. Then, they hoover up vast sums from the middle and lower floors of society with the aid of a crippled and corrupt state that allows it to rewrite the rules in exchange for the relative pennies the bank throws at political patronage. Finally, when it all goes bust, leaving millions of ordinary citizens broke and starving, they begin the entire process over again, writing in to rescue us all by lending us back our own money at interest, selling themselves as men above greed, just a bunch of really smart guys keeping the wheels greased. They've been pulling the same stunt over and over again since the 1920s, and now they're preparing to do it again. Anyway, Matt Taibbi is definitely on our short list of desired guests for this program. This is a hell of a good article. It outlines Goldman Sachs' efforts in the Great Depression, in the tech stock bubble of the late 90s, the housing craze that's uh, spread out over the last decade and beyond, but surprisingly also the $4 a gallon gas spike we saw last summer. And in bubble number five, he talks about how Goldman Sachs has rigged the bailout. And curiously, the article closes with what Matt Taibbi predicts will be the sixth great bubble that Goldman Sachs is going to get involved with, which is cap-and-trade carbon credits to fight off global warming. Taibbi notes that while what we need appears to be a carbon tax, which would directly work in the economy to encourage people to not spew CO2 into the atmosphere, what uh, the government's probably going to go with instead is an effort to produce these carbon credits that people will then trade, since there's a limited number of these and they're guaranteed to be reduced in, in issuance in the future. That means their value is going to go up. According to Matt Taibbi, Goldman Sachs is positioning, positioning itself to take full advantage of this situation, noting that they don't even have to rig the game in the future. The game is starting out rigged in their favor. I don't know. If this program were forum and we had one hour to devote to this guest and this topic, we would surely do it. But we're not, and we don't. 
One can hope that Matt Taibbi will come west and we will be able to hear him uh, for a full hour talking about this excellent article and what is going on at Goldman Sachs. This is a little bit complicated. We can't do this one in five minutes. But uh, speaking of public radio, and, and, you know, we're very pleased to have had Michael Krasny on this program some time back. Uh, we think his, his show forum, his program forum is excellent. But apparently KQED, like everybody else, is feeling a financial pinch, and I was horrified to see them send out a mailer to me soliciting um, my uh, contributions to the station, suggesting that I might be able to pocket $25,000 through a 2009 member raffle. They're also offering fantasy trips to Bora Bora. Anyway, I am horrified to see public radio using the same kind of techniques that the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes used to use. Frankly, it means I will not be sending them any money anytime soon. But if we're talking about where you can spend your money in return to that quote at which we started the show with, which was, every time you spend money, you're casting a vote for the kind of world you want, let's jump to talk about the new movie that's out, Food, Inc., it's an outstanding cinematic effort, an outstanding documentary featuring Eric Schlosser of Fast Food Nation and Michael Pollan of The Omnivore's Dilemma. Really can't recommend it highly enough, but I was dismayed to note that when I saw it on Sunday night, there were exactly 33 people in the Crest Theater. While I'm sure that the latest effort by jackass comic Baron Sasha Cohn, Bruno, was probably, paying to pa- probably playing to packed houses all over town. Actually, Mr. Merlin, you were there? I was there. And how, how full was this, this theater? Uh, about one quarter full. I'd say about 50 people were watching. You know, there may be hope for us yet. A topic we'll return, return to momentarily. Bruno, that is. But you know, a great thing about doing a radio program, this radio program, is we've had a chance to bring on people like Michael Pollan and talk to them about the omnivore's dilemma. Uh... Eric Schlosser remains on our, on our wish list. We may get him one day. But if you're listening to this program over the years, and, and we hope you have been, you know, we've talked about a lot was in, what is in that film. But, you know, there's something about the picture, there's something about uh, photographs, something about film that allows you to see something that you just didn't quite grasp before. For example, Dr. Whitney Lehman some years back came on this program and talked about uh, slaughterhouses and, you know, the raising of animals. But there's something about the footage of the cattle standing in their own manure up, you know, ankle deep, uh, you know, after being fed antibiotic-laced food, meaning they're pooping out uh, resistant strains of E. coli, which then is in the fur and pretty tough to keep out of the food. Something about seeing the pictures that really brings it home. But what really, really stunned me in watching this was the revelation that modern-day chickens, which are a breed which have been mutants, I guess, have been selected to really grow at a rapid rate and have lots of uh, uh, breast meat, are, are so awkward and so strangely constructed that they can barely walk. The film shows how these chickens can basically go forward a few steps and then plop back down again. Since they don't you know, live out in a yard and have to walk around much, it's no big deal. That, that, that really hit home to me. The chickens can hardly walk. The film was only able to go into one chicken farm because only one woman that had pretty much had it with the system, a system, by the way, wherein the average chicken farmer is $500,000 in debt to build these large uh, enclosures wherein they make 18000 a year. This woman had had it and let the cameraman in to take a look at you know, the chicken ranch. That's so you could see in the film how these chickens really could not walk. Well, a much bigger operation... Uh, which was more modern, and the woman was explaining how 
when she was asked to modernize, she pretty much said no, and they pulled her contract. And I forget in which case which meat packer it was in her particular case. might have been Purdue, but I think it was Tyson. I, I get them mixed up. There's, there's only a very small number of meat packers uh, in this country, but I don't know which one was which. But I think it was Tyson got to the, ranch, the rancher that was about to let the cameras in and just lobbied him hard not to. And he more or less said, I'm sorry, can't do it. They were described as these large enclosures that have tunnels that ventilate them, and they're dark. The chickens are kept in, this, in these dark rooms. Would like to have seen what they looked like, but uh, so would the film documentarians, and they were denied the privilege. Really scary stuff, though. Monsanto apparently took a guy uh, in, in, I guess, Indiana, who was one of the last people who was sorting out seeds so they could be planted for the next year, well, Monsanto alleges that pretty much, you know, all new seeds need to be planted every year. You can't save your seeds. You can't reuse your seeds. They're going to sell you the new batch of seeds you need next year. Thank you very much. And if you're even cleaning them to get them reused, Monsanto assumes you're committing a criminal act and sues these poor old guys. They got the money. They got the resources. They apparently have 75 people combing the Midwest whose only job is to prosecute people that they... Uh, are doing who are doing things Monsanto doesn't like. And all in all, it's pretty horrifying. They they asked the guy with the with the seed cleaning company how many of these there were and how many there used to be and he said, "Well, I think now there's about 6 in the state. Used to be every county had 3." I'm hoping somewhere out there in Radio Land one of you is going to uh, you know, can send me a list of what Monsanto owns. I can find this on the web myself, but if someone would help me, I'd like to know what Monsanto owns so that we can uh I think find out who to boycott. And by the way, that opinion, like all, all of the opinions heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, any of our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. But you knew that. They also talk about food disparagement laws that uh, big industrial, uh, ag industrial firms have managed to ram through Congress. I mean, they almost took down Oprah Winfrey with, with one of these when she made some what they considered disparaging remarks about American beef. Anyway, we need to talk about all that and more, and we will return to this topic. Uh, Matt Perry has seen a Food Inc., and when he comes back to talk about uh, public enemies and possibly Bruno, we'll, we'll, talk about, uh, we'll talk about this film again. But let's talk about Bruno. Mr. McMillan, I believe you did, you did, as you just mentioned, have a chance to see this piece of celluloid excrement. What, what did you think? I did see it, yes, that's true. And uh, I thought there was about five minutes of stuff that was funny. The rest was filler. But uh, I paid nine fifty for my ticket, and for that five minutes, it was certainly worth nine fifty to me. Well, I guess that's the standard of a, of a movie. If you get five minutes of hard laughing, it's, that's about all you can expect in a modern comedy. Yeah, I guess uh, the parts that I was laughing at, no one else seemed to be laughing at, but uh, I guess that's just me. But the rest of it was addressed to just, uh, anybody who's shocked by seeing uh, flamboyant uh, gay behavior. I know you're a much bigger Baron Cohn fan than I am, which is say, just to say not a fan at all. I do, I admit, I, it's good for a laugh now and again, but I think he's just having everybody on. I don't see who this guy's satirizing. I'm not sure about the satire, but like, Howard Stern is a shock jock. Sasha Baron Cohen is a shock actor. He shocks a certain percentage of the population. I found it rather boring and dull myself. I don't find that necessarily shocking, but uh, I imagine some people are. But it's not doing as well as his previous film, Borat. 
Oh, they say it opened big this week and is number one film in America. Ticket sales, I think, have reduced since opening, and there, like I said, there's only about one quarter of the theater was full while I was there. Anyway, I think I'll quote from Mick LaSalle, San Francisco Chronicle movie critic, about uh, Bruno. The bad outweighs the good, and the cringes outnumber the laughs in Bruno, a disappointment from Sasha Baron Cohen, whose Borat was one of the funniest movies of the decade. Well, <laughs> that's a matter of opinion. His new film is grounded in a doomed comic strategy, one that is intellectually dishonest and unfair in its application, to expose homophobia by wallowing in and trading on ugly gay stereotypes. Cohn's strategy is to make audiences laugh at homosexuality itself, or perhaps at his outrageous lampoon of homosexuality, and then think less of the unsuspecting people who take his act at face value. He flatters the audience's vanity as if saying, you're so hip, you know this is ridiculous, while offering a fever dream of homosexual anxiety for our comic appreciation. But Bruno can't succeed as satire because it has no moral grounding or honest point of view. Imagine if this were, say, 1960. Imagine if a white comedian went in the deep south disguised in a very convincing blackface and started acting, acting like Step and Fetch it. How funny would that be? And let's say he met some white racist who believed his act for the simple reason that he confirmed their fantasies. Would this speak less of the comedian or of the people he's fooling? Or would it just be a tie? Anyway, Esquire magazine put him on the cover of their current issue described as our comedy issue, adding that it also includes their first nude cover. Unfortunately, it's of Baron Cohn. And the article inside goes on for page after page after page. And don't bother, folks. There ain't a laugh in it. I do want to compliment the hell out of the magazine, however, for its article on Harold Ramis. We have high hopes at Radio Parallax that when they do the third version of Ghostbusters, they're going to get it right and duplicate the hilarity of film number one. Ramis is a writer, an actor, and a pretty damn good director. If you saw the Brendan Fraser remake of Bedazzled a few years ago, you know, you know, he's got some talent. Well, like, you knew that because, you know, he was the guy that helped write Animal House, appeared in Meatball Stripes and Caddyshack, and, uh, and directed Analyze This. Pretty damn good interview they had with uh, Mr. Ramis in Esquire. Noted that when they wrote, uh, he and Doug Kenny wrote Animal House, they had some other actors in mind for the parts. Chevy Chase was going to be Otter. Bill Murray was going to have the Peter Riggert part. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was going to be D-Day, and Brian Doyle Murray would be the president of the fraternity. Noting they might have had John Candy as the flounder character. That would have been a pretty funny movie, too. Said Ramis, I've always had this kind of ability to get into people's heads and think in their voices. I mean, I could write for people. I had Bill Murray's voice down. People would read something I'd written for him. They'd say, oh, that is so perfectly Bill Murray. Of course, the irony is Murray would read it and say, bull, I can't say this. Here's a shocking factoid buried in the article. After these guys put out stripes... Ramis said he heard that enlistments in the, in the armed forces went up 10%. Oh, man, that's disturbing. And the shocking thing in the interview, apparently Ramis has had, actually had a chance to hang out with the Dalai Lama. So, so he asks him about the line in Caddyshack, noting that the devotees of the Dalai Lama just didn't understand what they were talking about. They said, the Dalai Lama does not play golf. Ramis would say, I know, I know. But if he did... <laughs> And in one little bit that I think maybe has some, uh, some bearing on the whole uh, uh, Bruno fiasco, someone said to him, you know, you've been kind of tagged with being the godfather of gross-out comedy. 
Remus replied, I've always thought the generation of movies that followed Animal House sort of mistook the style for the content. Like, I think the Farrelly brothers are more porkies than Animal House. Doug Kenny used to say this great thing, broad comedy doesn't have to be dumb comedy. Anyway, I thought we'd talk movies in segment three, but now I've got segment three to talk something else about. So let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more coming up. Stay tuned. <laughs> 